Father God, uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to come into this room together with others and to be able to study your word. And we would ask you now to speak to us, each and every one. We all come with different things happening in our lives, and some of us are rejoicing because of things happening this morning. Others of us are really struggling. And uh, the amazing thing about you, Father, is that you love us, and we are loved by you. And you can speak to us, each one, precisely as we need. And would you do that this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series that we began just last Sunday. We're talking about the man Moses. Moses is probably the second most influential man who ever lived, second only to very good, very good. That's right. Uh, and we are wanting to learn more about God by looking at how Moses relates to God and how God relates back to Moses. Our topic for this morning is the subject of surrender. Every human being must decide whether you surrender yourself to God, whether you will pray the prayer, not my will, but your will be done, Lord, or you're going to pray the prayer, not your will, but my will be done, Lord. And the prayer you pray will determine the path of your whole life. I hope you know that. Uh, it's the difference between willingness, willingness to surrender our lives to God, to walk with him, to fulfill his purposes, his plans, uh, or, and that's uh, willingness or willfulness, which is, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. My plans, that's what my life will be about. And the course of my life, the things that I accomplish, the legacy that I leave behind will depend entirely on which of those two prayers I pray. And truth be known, we try very hard to avoid looking at this particular subject, the subject of surrender. Now, not so much in church on Sundays, but I'm talking about in the ordinary, everyday moments of our life. This thing of surrender is something we would like to mostly avoid. But I would just argue this. I would say that whether we're aware of it or not, we are engaged in an all-out struggle. A daily battle, if you will, for our hearts and our minds and our souls. Every day, all day long, we are confronted with the question of surrender. Will I surrender to God? It's a very real struggle for everyone who is a disciple of Jesus, for everyone who intentionally wants to follow Jesus. It's a struggle because there are two things going on inside us all the time. On the one hand, the Spirit of God works in us to cause us to want to be in the will of God, to want to do what God wants us to do. But on the other hand, we have these old beliefs in us, these old ideas, these old habits, these old patterns of sin, if you will, and they are like lost lovers calling us back to bed. Not a good image, but it gets the point across, I hope. These things tempt us to believe a lie about who we are, a lie about what will satisfy us, a lie about what would really make us happy in life. And so we are daily engaged in this struggle, our will or God's will. Which will it be? And in a very real sense, life is all about the question of surrender. Moment by moment, tender-hearted yieldedness to God. Will you follow Jesus or will you simply do what you want to do? And friends, I say this with sadness. Uh, all of us at times choose the latter. We do. That's the truth about us. Not your will, but my will be done, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what you want me to do. I'm not going there. And when we do that, 
Know it or not, we pay a price. We pay a price. We give up the best for something less. C.S. Lewis talked about it this way. C.S. Lewis would talk about children playing in a mud puddle when all the while God was calling us to come play at the seashore. And it's kind of like that. We give up the best for the less. And this morning we are going to look at our friend Moses as he begins the greatest journey of his life. And I'm not talking about the one that's from Egypt to the promised land. I'm talking not about a geographical journey, more of a spiritual journey. It's Moses' journey from willfulness, my will be done, to willingness, Lord, your will be done. Exodus 2 last week told us of Moses' amazing delivery from death at childbirth, how he was protected, how he was educated, how he was prepared for the ministry of leading God's people at a later time. And this morning we're going to look at Moses' The man, And if you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Exodus chapter 2 with me. We're going to be reading uh, starting at verse 11. And this is a, uh, now, of course, Moses the man, not Moses the child. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? Apparently, this was a regular occurrence, and they don't usually get home this early. And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Kind of a, you know, a door prize, you know, come to dinner, have my daughter. Uh, Zipporah gave birth to a son. All this happened on a single night, by the way. It's miraculous. <laughs> Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And we can chuckle a little bit, but of course, what's being described there was are events that actually took place over a period of time. Um, parents, you know this, when parents are having a baby and they bring that little one home from the hospital, that is a little miracle to them. That is a little bundle of joy and wonder, so precious. And then one day, about a year or two into the process of raising that little child, that little bundle of wonder learns a word and they use this word all the time. It's their favorite word. And the little bundle will say it from morning till night. Anybody know what the word is? No. It's interesting. Eat your vegetables. No. Yeah. Take a nap. No. Share your toys with the brother or the sister. No. Uh, just curious, how many of you have ever had or been around uh, a two-year-old and observed them? Have you, anybody here? Okay. How many of you ever noticed just a smidgen of willfulness in a two-year-old? Yeah. I have a granddaughter. And uh, 
Horan is amazingly willful. This, this kid's going to lead a movement someday. I don't know if it'll be good or if it'll be bad, but she will be leading a movement. She is the most independent little individual I have ever seen. She fits this description just perfectly. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. It is a good thing to have a will and to exercise that will. God gave us a will so that we would be able to make decisions. Uh, absolutely necessary thing. But very early on, here's the point. We begin to want our will to have its way. We want our will to win out over other people's wills. We begin to want it, even though it may cause damage in other people's lives. We want it whatever the cost. We want our will even over God's will. We become willful. Are you with me so far? That's a lot of will and willful, but okay. That's kind of who we are. One day, Amram and Jochebed, that's Moses' parents, they had this little bundle of wonder, right? And they named him Moses. God miraculously saves Moses' life. And uh, he survives the genocide of his day that had been commanded, you remember, by the Pharaoh. He's adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter when the Pharaoh's daughter discovers him. And he is raised with the finest that money and position and power can provide. And we learn in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, that Moses was educated, it says, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And it says he became powerful in speech and action. That's who Moses is as a young man. He's a man that has a position of unparalleled power and influence over others. He grew up literally in the lap of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was his grandfather. Nobody who counted in Egypt was unaware of Moses. Powerful men would bow to him when Moses, the young man, would pass by. Everybody had high hopes for this young, influential, well-educated, highly-placed grandson of Pharaoh. Uh, the teachers, the generals, the coaches who trained him, the Pharaoh who paid for his education, the, the entourage that no doubt followed Moses, the playmates that he had had growing up, families of powerful Egyptians all wondered, what's he going to do? What's this young man going to accomplish? And probably, too, I'm guessing, some distance away where the slaves were living in a slave's hovel, uh, there was another father and another mother who every day remembered their sacrifice and saw the empty spot where Moses would have been sleeping had he, had he remained in their home. And every day they know that he's being raised far away in a magnificent palace, more splendid than just about anything we could imagine, by the most powerful people on the planet at that time. That's who's raising Moses. And no doubt Moses' parents wondered, will he remember his people? Or is he just going to forget? Will he think about his mother and father who risked their lives for him once upon a time? God must surely have something special for this young man, given all of the events and all of the circumstances in his life that have led up to this, mo this moment. And I'm guessing that Moses, too, must have asked similar questions. Who am I? Why exactly am I here? What am I going to do? What does my future hold? Am I destined to do something great? And then Moses, of course, becomes a man. And so we read that verse. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. That's a phrase that's very, there very deliberately. And he watched them at their hard labor. He's not laboring, but he's watching. He watched them at their hard labor. 
And it says, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. There's that phrase again. And the implication here is that Moses does know his own story. He knows to whom he belongs. He knows about his own people. He sees their struggle. He sees their oppression. It bothers him. And he has to decide in that moment, what is he going to do? Is he just going to watch? Is that it? Or will he identify with his own people, with the Hebrews? Huge question, loaded question. And we're told that he makes a break with the Pharaoh's court. That's the decision he makes. He joins the Hebrews in their struggle. Maybe it's, it's pr pretty likely, actually, that he, he perceived himself as being their deliverer. Maybe he thinks he'll save them from their slavery and their misery and their oppression, their horrible situation. However, there is one thing that Moses does not do, and it's pretty noticeable. Uh, he does not consult with God in any of this. Maybe he thinks he's bright enough or gifted enough or skilled enough or strong enough, powerful enough. He's got this. He can make this happen. This plan of his, he will make unfold. The most noticeable thing about these verses, verses 11 to 22 that we read a moment ago, is that there is no mention of God whatsoever in them. Not at all. Moses, I think, is very well intended in what happens here, but there is a willfulness factor in his life that, believe me, we're going to see God working on for the rest of Moses' life. Working on this problem of his willfulness. Um, and that problem really it won't be eradicated until he dies, actually. Now, in the moments that remain, what I would like to do is I'd like to make some observations about the willfulness that we see in Moses' life because it has a lot to say to us about the willfulness that is in our lives as well. And as we do this, I want us to think about this subject of surrender, our personal surrender to God because surrendering, you understand, is what a disciple does. I mean, that is what a disciple does. Day in, day out, they surrender. Um, a disciple is supposed to practice surrendering to God in every situation. Uh, the language of the New Testament is that we die to self. That means we die to our own personal willfulness. And so the first observation I'd like to make is just this. Willfulness is, in essence, a lack of dependence on God. More than anything else, I think it's a lack of dependence on God. Maybe a, just a being a living life unaware of God. It's not always, in other words, it's not always outright rejection of God. It can be that, but it's not usually that. More often, it's just not thinking of God, not including him in your life, uh, not taking him into account, kind of what we see Moses do in the passage we just read. Moses is a pretty self-assured guy, I gather. Uh, he seems convinced he's trained enough, smart enough, powerful enough, as I said, gifted enough. He doesn't need anybody else's help. He probably thinks that once he steps on the scene, people are going to recognize his skills, his ability, his leadership, his wisdom, and so on. They're just going to follow him. Maybe the most obvious sign of Moses' willfulness, uh, if, uh, of his not depending on God at this particular time in his life, is that he doesn't consult God. He doesn't seek God's wisdom. He doesn't ask for guidance. He doesn't pray. There's no mention of Moses spending any time doing any such thing. And I would assume that's because he didn't. He just didn't. Now, let's contrast the second most influential individual in the history of uh, mankind to the first most influential individual in all of human history. 
And that would be Jesus. If you've ever read the Gospels, you know that in Jesus' life, there was a certain rhythm to the way he lived, certain things he was committed to. For example, and I've mentioned this many, many times in the past, but Jesus had a, a persistent, consistent uh, rhythm of reaching up, connecting with his heavenly Father. Uh, he would be in synagogue on Saturday, or he would be at temple if he was in Jerusalem, and uh, he would get alone with his Father, whether that was on a mountain or whether that was walking around the beaches of the Sea of Galilee, or sometimes he just walked across the Sea of Galilee. He practiced doing things that would connect him over and over and over and over again to his heavenly father. But not just that, he also practiced a, a rhythm of reaching in. He created little communities that he led and that he was a part of. He would regularly meet with a group of brothers and a group of sisters, and they would grow together. They would pray for one another and pray to God, and they would seek God's will. They would plan together how to surrender themselves to God. And something else that Jesus did with this group of brothers and sisters, he would reach out with them. Together, they would go and serve others. Sometimes it would be teaching. Sometimes it was feeding. Sometimes it was healing. But they loved and they served people together. That's part of what we want to do this coming Saturday is be able to make a statement that, hey, we, together we, we want to serve Jesus by loving you, by serving you. But very often we get this kind of thing backwards. I, I know that I do. In fact, I can point to too many examples of this in my life over the years. I think of a plan. I put it into action. I get others to participate with me. And then if it fails or goes really bad, I pray. Oh, God, help me. Show me what to do. How do I fix this? Get me out of this mess, please, God. <laughs> it's doing the whole thing backwards. And I don't think I'm the only one who does this. How many of you have ever tried to take on a project or fix some problem that was looming in your life, make a significant decision around time or uh, around a relationship or around money or around some ministry, something that required real wisdom, but you didn't talk to the Father first? You didn't seek his wisdom or his guidance. Father, what would you have me do? Not my will, but your will be done. Anyone here ever done that? Anyone here ever regret doing that? Yeah. It's ironic, really. We sang about this in one of the songs that we sang earlier, but we forget just how much we actually depend upon God for everything. We take this for granted. We forget how, how much we depend on him. Uh, we don't realize that just waking up in the morning is a gift literally from him. It's not something you should expect every morning. Uh, there will come a morning when you don't wake up. You'll be dead, okay? Uh, it's going to happen to all of us. But when you're given a day like today, you, you woke up, you're here, you're asleep again, but you woke up uh, at one point in time. And when you're given a gift like that, do you realize it's a gift? I know I don't. I, I take it for granted. Oh, this is just me. It's life, my life. But it's not. It's a gift. Every breath you take is a gift from God. Uh, every meal you consume is a gift from God. He gave you the job that pays for the food, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the clothes that you wear, gift from God. Uh, the thoughts that run through your mind, that health that allows thoughts to happen, a gift from God. Not everybody has that gift. Some people's minds aren't working correctly and they're not thinking clearly or, or rightly or what have you. But if you are thinking rightly, that's a gift from God. Uh, every muscle you move in your body, that's a gift of health from God that does not happen. Not, nothing happens in our life without the sustaining grace of God making or enabling that to happen. Do you get that? It's a huge thing. 
And if we understood this more clearly, if we lived and walked by faith and not by sight, which is kind of what that is, if we lived with a deeper awareness of our utter and absolute dependence on God, then perhaps we'd be more inclined to consult him about the decisions we make or the directions we take in our lives. Um, I'd love to try a little experiment together. It's simple, but it's not easy. (laughs) If we did it, I think it would help us with this problem of willfulness that we all have. And all it is is just praying a little prayer. It's practicing this prayer. Uh, It's part of a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And we could pray it in the morning when we get up. We could pray it all day long at different times if if we'd remember it. Uh, We could pray it right before we go to bed. Uh, Some of you know this prayer is super simple. Uh, It goes like this. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's part of what we call the, the Lord's prayer, but ironically, it's really the disciples' prayer. So interesting to me that when Jesus was asked to teach his disciples to pray, this is kind of the core kernel of what he taught a disciple to pray. It had to do with willfulness. God's will or my will. That's how important this is. And practicing doing this each day, uh, you know, in this particular moment, God, right now, for me, your will be done, not my will. In this meeting that I'm about to go into, God, your will be done, not my will. In my interactions with this person, God, your will be done. As I shop, as I exercise, as I work, as I go to school, uh, when I am tempted, Lord, your will be done. A disciple develops that habit and uses that prayer. And to the degree that we do it with consistency, it changes everything, everything. Now Moses didn't do this. Nothing in the text tells us he had this practice. He apparently doesn't pray, he doesn't recognize his need of God in this very important moment. He's well intended, but the plans to solve the problem uh, that he comes up with, the plans on his own, there's not a good result from it. There just isn't. So second observation. When we act willfully, not consulting God, not depending on God, not aware of our need of God, we forget that God is watching. We forget that it's so important that he come and take every step with us and guide us and lead us along the way. Verse 12 tells us that uh, Moses is planning to do a very bad thing. Uh, What is it? It's murder. Anybody here ever murdered? Oh, okay. <laughs> Jesus says we have. You know, we've, we've murdered people right here, you know. Uh, what does Moses do, though, before he commits this, this literal act of murder? It says in verse 12, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That's what Moses did. He looks around to make sure nobody's watching, right? He looks everywhere but up, right? He doesn't look up. You see, he's not thinking of God. He forgets that God is watching. He forgets about the God that saved him as a baby and has literally brought him to this very moment. You see, his question that he's asking is not, what does God want me to do? It's, can I get away with this? That's his question. And uh, Moses is a smart guy. He's just not smart enough. He doesn't look up. Uh, He's taking precautions to cover his tracks, but he forgets that God sees always. God sees everything. 
Now, friends, here we come to a very hard truth about this thing of surrendering. At first, it sounds like such a wonderful thing, surrendering. It'd be a really good topic for a sermon in a church on a Sunday morning. But I mean, you know, who is not for surrendering when you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, you got your butt out of bed and you're here. So, boy, you're surrendered, right? I'm surrendered. I'm doing a message on surrender. Uh, people have in, in the past, in the history of the church, have written uh, songs about surrender because we want to surrender all to Jesus. Jesus, I surrender all to him. I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. How many know that hymn? How many know this hymn? Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. And those words have been sung countless numbers of times in churches. There's a little bit of a danger around that. Uh, I suppose the danger would be that as we sing songs like that and we feel inspired and we feel encouraged in the moment, we start to imagine that we really are fully surrendered like that. But in case you haven't thought about it or don't know it, it's easy to be fully surrendered to God sitting in church on a Sunday morning. That's easy. It gets a lot harder when your heart starts crying out to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do. Then you will be amazed what stubborn little bits of clay you become. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me, but let me get my own way. You know, we change the words to that hymn. And you know, the truth about surrender comes out when you're tempted to sin. That is decision time. Do I do God's will? Or my will. Uh, that's why, too, that a disciple literally needs to practice praying this prayer. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Practice it with others. Have accountability with others. Part of practicing is that whole thing of developing the rhythms that Jesus had in his life. Reaching up, connecting with God. Reaching in, connecting with others. And reaching out and loving others in the name of Jesus. Rhythms that help us learn to say, I will follow Jesus. I will do what you want me to do, Jesus. Lord, your will be done. You know, the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and uh, he wrote these words. He uses different language, but it's the same prayer. He wrote the words, he says, put to death, there's that death language. That's how serious, that's how painful it could be. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, put it to death. Impurity, put it to death. Impure thoughts, don't go there. Lust, put it to death. Evil desires, put it to death. Greed, put it to death, which is idolatry, Paul says. All these things are idolatry because you think that you've got to have those things to satisfy you, those things to make you happy. What really needs to happen is those things need to die. What Paul is saying is die to willfulness. Die to fulfilling your own desires when those desires are in conflict with God's. And uh, if we're going to be honest, might as well be, right? <sighs> Whenever you do this, you pay a price. There is a cost associated with surrender. And it takes on many different forms. Let me mention a couple. I'm guessing some of you in this room have a career that you love. And by the way, that's a gift. If you have a career that you love, that is a huge gift that God has given you. He actually lined you up with your skills and abilities to do something you're qualified and gifted and you enjoy doing. Huge gift from God. Um, but if you have a career that you love, you may have 
noticed over the years that you want to advance that career just about as much as anything you want. And to do that, you've noticed that there might be bosses to please, or if you're the boss, you know, you work twice as hard as the employees usually. Uh, there's just a copious amount of time that you have to devote to the accomplishment of certain tasks to advance that career. Maybe even in, there are times in the rhythm or the process of life that you discover you, you have to sacrifice certain family things in order to advance that career. Maybe that becomes a pattern in your life. Maybe even there are times when you, you find yourself kind of self promoting, maybe even at the expense of others, uh, or even cutting corners when it comes to uh, your priorities, spiritual uh, time priorities, those kinds of things. The temptation, here's my point, is to do anything it takes to advance that career. Now, advancing a career is fine. It's good. Nothing wrong with it, but not at any price. So what do you do? When you're in one of those moments where there is a price to be paid. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. You see, to pray that and mean it could cost you. It could mean rearranging your priorities. And you have to figure that out, right? If you're going to follow. And the point is, you know, whose will are you going to do? It's a tough decision because you're not sitting in church singing, you know, kumbaya or have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You have a decision to make in the day to day. And those can be tough, costly decisions. Let me give you another example of this kind of costly struggle. Uh, some here this morning have been dishonest about money. And I just want to read your names from this list right now. <laughs> You've charged something to an expense account that was really a personal expense. Or you've made tax claims that you know aren't true. Or you've just been greedy when you had an opportunity to not be greedy and to help, but you didn't do it. You didn't take the opportunity, even though you had a sense maybe that's what God wanted you to do. Or you follow Jesus, but you have never seriously honored him with your resources. You've never moved toward anything like tithing. Whatever it is, nobody knows about this. It's just you and God. What are you going to do? You got a choice to make. Your will or his will be done. I can tell you, choosing to do God's will will cost you. Let me give you another example of the cost, the pain of surrender. Uh, someone here this morning is involved in sexual activity with a person you're not married to. Or maybe you're married, but you've crossed some emotionally intimate lines in things that you've shared and in ways that you've shared with another person. Maybe not the, the ultimate line, maybe we're not talking about that, but still lines of intimacy that you know you shouldn't have crossed. And everything inside you just screams, keep crossing that line, keep crossing that line. It feels so good, it must be right, but you know it isn't. Friends, the question is, whose will are you going to do? Your will or God's will? You see, we get so used to just doing our will and hardly even thinking about God. We never even consider what we lose 
what price we pay in that process when we don't do God's will. You know, when we don't fight the battle of surrender, and that's what it is every day, all day long, when we don't do that, I'll tell you what we lose. We lose our true identity. We lose our freedom to become the person we were really meant to be. A person who keeps promises. A person who speaks the truth. A person who chooses to do what's right. A person with the right priorities. And we become instead somebody who has to live a lie. You see, I have to pretend. Oh, I I follow Jesus. But I am loving my job more than my family. I've got those priorities out of whack. But I'll pretend like I got it right. I'm having an affair. I'm married. I don't want anybody to know about it. So I've got to live in that darkness, in that lie. Or I'm living a greedy life. It's all about me, really. But I'll make it look like it's not. And so I have to hide. I've got to pretend. I've got a guard. And that, friends, is, that's a private, painful kind of life to live. How much better would it be if I just remembered, you know what? God sees. God is watching. He, he knows everything I'm doing. and he, he provides everything for me. Nobody loves me like he does. God is watching, and therefore, I'll just do the right thing. I'll do what he wants me to do. And this is why, friends, we really need to practice surrendering, even though it is costly to do, because doing His will always leads to freedom. It always does. It leads to to freedom, to the freedom to live in truth. It leads to the freedom to become who we're meant to be. It leads to the freedom to experience His grace richly and deeply. It leads to the freedom to, to die, if necessary, with a clean and a clear conscience. And when we don't do this, when we don't surrender to God, we become someone we're not really meant to be. We become someone who pretends. There is a a musical that I love, and I've used this illustration once long ago, but I'm gonna use it again because I love the musical. Um, It's called Les Miserables, and uh, it's really one of my favorite musicals. And I know there are people who love musicals and there are people who hate musicals and you can leave if you hate musicals because we're going to. But this is a Les Mis. This is the story of Jean Valjean, right? And his struggle in life. As a young man, he steals some bread and he gets put in prison. Punishment was very harsh. And he's in prison for many years. But when he finally gets out, he can't find work. He can't survive. He has no money. Uh, and he's absolutely desperate. And he comes upon a, a bishop, a priest, late one evening who actually takes him into his home, the rectory there, the home associated with the church, lets him spend the night. And, and that night, Jean Valjean, in desperation, uh, steals the church's silverware, the, the bowls, the forks, the knives, uh, things of that nature. Next morning, he's caught by the local jardin, the police. They bring him back to the priest, to the bishop, expecting the bishop to accuse him and and back to jail he's going to go. But here's what's interesting. This bishop, this priest lies to the police. He tells them that he had given Jean Valjean the silverware and even tells him, you know, you forgot to take with you these candelabra, these candlesticks, these silver 
candlesticks. And this gift of grace, that gift of mercy, that gift of money changes Jean Valjean's life completely. And Jean Valjean decides he's going to flee his parole officer. His parole officer is named Javert. You can say that with me. Javert, yeah. Javert is a is a cop who loves the law, and he has been pursuing Jean Valjean because Jean Valjean fled his parole, right? Javert is, is after him. And Jean Valjean changes his name and changes his life. He becomes a very successful businessman. He uses that, that silver uh, as seed money, that silverware, and he even becomes the mayor of a French city, and he's a great philanthropist. He's doing all kinds of good. But Jean Valjean, the man he pretends not to be, is still a wanted man because he has fled parole, and Javert is looking for him. And there's a moment in the musical. Another man is caught by Javert, and Javert mistakes this individual to be Jean Valjean. You still with me? Yeah. Okay, they think he's Jean Valjean. And they bring this man to the mayor, the real Jean Valjean. Now the temptation, as you can well imagine, is let this man bear my punishment and I don't have to worry about ever being found out again. And the mayor is greatly tempted, as you and I would be. But he knows the grace of God. And he knows what God would have him do. And God would not want him to send another man to prison for his crimes. And so he sings a song. The song is called, Who Am I? He's wrestling with the answer to that question. He's wrestling with the temptation. He sings in the song, My soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope. God gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to carry on. Who am I, he asked. And you see, if he admits his true identity, he's condemned back to prison. If he surrenders to this temptation, he's damned spiritually. Because then he is willfully disobeying Jesus. And he'll always be a pretender. He'll always be living a lie. He'll always be another man. Pretending to be another man, a man he's not. And someone else will be paying his penalty. And so he wrestles with this question, who am I? And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to sing that song for you. <laughs> no, I, 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 want you to, I want you to listen to uh, Colm Wilkinson sing this song and, and um, just appreciate the moment and the decision that he's making in this moment. Take a look. You know, Jean Valjean is prisoner 24601. He's God's child. He's redeemed. He's received grace. He's living in the fact, the knowledge that God sees and therefore it matters what he does. But that truth costs him something. And here's the deal. We all answer the who am I question every time we face the temptation to sin. God's will or my will? Who am I? Which will it be? And sometimes the choice is costly and painful, but always, always when we choose to do the will of God, it leads to freedom. It leads us to becoming who we were really meant to be. And you have to go see Les Mis to see who he becomes, who he was meant to be. You know, for Moses, all of this surrender business involved enormous pain. 
Uh, Moses had, I think, decided that he would be the deliverer of the Hebrews. He had a plan he was going to work. And then he found, much to his shock, that they didn't want him to lead them. That's what he discovered. In those verses, uh, back in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, makes a decision. And he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Midian, my friends, is way, way, way out in the wilderness. It's east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Almost nobody lived there. That's where he went. And here's the third observation, and it's simply this. The wilderness can actually, and often is, uh, it's actually a good place for a disciple to learn. And we're going to find out in our study of Moses that the wilderness in Scripture is a special place. I can't say a lot about it now just because of our time, but we will discover that in the wilderness, it's a place for Moses and many other characters in the Bible. It's a great place of growth because all of Moses' potential, all of his wealth, all of his contacts, all of his influence, all of his relationships, all of his status, it's all gone in the wilderness. Moses is only a shepherd in the wilderness. But interestingly, that's where Moses meets God in the wilderness. That's where Moses learns to surrender to God. That's where he rediscovers the truth that God is always watching, even in the wilderness. When all of the other stuff is stripped away, the wilderness, as difficult as it was, turns out to be a great place of learning for Moses. Amazing things happen in the wilderness. And I would just say, if that's you this morning, you're sitting here and you're in a difficult place, a place that feels all alone, a place that feels confusing, it's painful, don't give up. Don't think that that place of wilderness is a place where God doesn't see what's going on. And don't think, don't make the mistake that God is not with you. And don't make the mistake that God cannot use the wilderness profoundly in your life. You're probably right in the place where you can learn most. So learn about God's goodness and learn about his sufficiency and learn about his, his provision and learn how to surrender. Now, in closing, I want to give us a surrender assignment. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ushers, would you take care of that person? Here's the surrender assignment. Let's, let's practice this week to the best of our ability. Um, let's practice this thing, thing of surrender by, by using the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's practice using that, that seminal part of what we call the Lord's Prayer. There was a missionary named Frank Laubach. He died in 1970. He wrote a book called Letters uh, letters by a modern mystic, and he was a mystic, but he was a Jesus follower. And he made the decision that he wanted to know God better than he knew God. And he decided pretty clearly that that had to do with this thing of surrender. And so he decided that he would develop the routine in his life of every 15 minutes, 
asking two questions. Father, what do you want me to say in this situation? Father, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say, Father? What do you want me to do? And every 15 minutes, he would ask that question. He practiced stopping his schedule. Can you imagine? That'd be very difficult to do. It's really, though, just another way of praying the prayer. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. So here's the assignment. For anyone wanting to get to know God better, I promise you this will help. Morning and evening and every moment in between that you think of it, pray the prayer this week. Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, here's the thing. When you fail, and the truth is we are all of us going to fail a lot, even though we will be praying this prayer if you do it. When we fail, we get right back up, we go right back to the Father, and we receive grace. Jesus knew this would be the story of our lives. And so he, he taught us to understand that grace is available. I've sinned, I've done wrong, here's what I did, Lord, forgive me. I want to get back on the path with you. I want to follow you. Your will be done, Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So do that this week with your, with your money, with your time, with your relationships, uh, with the talents that you have. Surrender. Use this prayer that Jesus taught. It's not a coincidence that this is the, the seminal pivot point in a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples because he knew how much we would need to practice praying this prayer. Moses, we'll see in the weeks to come, learned to surrender, and his surrender began in the wilderness. Imagine what would happen if everyone in this room right now simply said, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to learn to surrender. I'm going to devote myself one day at a time. That's the only way you can do it. I'm going to line myself up all day long with doing the will of God. Imagine the impact of a group of people doing that. It would be amazing. It would affect families. It would affect places of work. It would affect school. It would affect church. It would affect the community out there. What an impact we could have simply by praying and practicing this prayer together. What a difference we could make. What joy this would bring to God. And so if you want to practice this this week, give this a shot. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now. This is just another way of saying everybody stand because, you know, if you don't want to practice it, the one individual over here can remain seated. Who, <laughs> Pray with me. Father, we all stand, um, but we also, <laughs> each of us have some sense of, of this thing inside us that literally rebels against the very notion of surrendering anything to anyone, let alone surrendering everything to you. Father, we need your help this week. We need to remember this prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're going to need it at times when we're tempted to sin. We're going to need it when right, we find ourselves already right in the middle of a mess, maybe angry. And we're going to need to back up. And we're going to need you to give us wisdom, give us reminders. But God, we want to be disciples who follow Jesus. And we know that to get better at that, this prayer can help us. 
Help us become good surrenderers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.